Hello, this is Mike Zenko, and thank you so much for joining us for another podcast. This is the eighth podcast in this series, and please stay tuned because we have more coming up throughout the uh, end of the summer and into the fall. Today, we're really, really lucky to be joined by Corey Shockey, research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and among one of the absolute most respected scholar practitioners in the world of national security and military affairs. Corey worked in a number of critical positions at the Pentagon, the NSC, and the State Department, is a prolific author in transatlantic relations in NATO, defense strategy, uh, wrote a fantastic book in 2012 on the State Department called State of Disrepair, Fixing the Culture and Practices of the State Department. Uh, the subtitle of that should have been, They Don't Just Need More Money. Corey is also the best columnist at foreignpolicy.com and an outstanding regular contributor to the Editor's Roundtable podcast series there. Check her out. Finally, in December, Corey was featured in Vogue magazine alongside her sister, Christina. And if you haven't had a chance to see that, I highly recommend you do. Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a privilege, my friend. Well, we are going to get into your latest book, which you co-edited with retired Marine General Jim Mattis. The title is Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military. And I, by the way, I like that you use the term our military and not the military. It includes chapters by civil military scholars like Peter Fever, Nadia Skadlow, Tom Donnelly, Rosa Brooks, Lindsay Cohn. I highly recommend the book for anyone interested in civil military affairs from a scholarship perspective, but also if you're a major or lieutenant colonel in any of the services, this is a book you should read. Or if you're just a citizen interested in learning more about the split between civil military perspectives, this is the best book written on this subject in, I would say, 15 to 20 years. And that's part of, I think, the reason you, you, you wrote the book, because there hasn't been much on this subject, despite its uh, sort of reemergence in the press. So, you know, the military is, as you point out in the book, the most respected public institution. Each of the services routinely meet their uh, recruiting and retention goals. And most of the public is supportive of U.S. military operations. So why pursue a project on civil-military relations today? There are a couple of reasons, Micah. The first is that Jim and I were struck at how much of the conversation about civil military affairs is the extrapolation from personal experience. Mm. Or, uh, you know, as Jim likes to say, the plural of anecdote isn't data. And the data collection is expensive, especially if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of trying to understand whether there's a difference between elite attitudes and the general public, policy-relevant elites and other elites. And we had the luxury of research money that allowed us to do that. And so we wanted to make the data freely available to scholars, journalists, anybody who has an interest in it, in order to facilitate more rigorous conversations about the gaps between civilian attitudes and the military. Because, of course, as you know, 30 years into an all-volunteer force, there are natural gaps. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to understand where the gaps lie, which of them are salient, which of the salient gaps are amenable to policy remediation, and which we ought to be thinking about as immutable. And so we went through a big data collection effort. Also, there are no time series data hmm. in this field. And so we took a lot of the questions that we thought continued to be relevant from the triangle study that Peter Fever and others did in 1998, 
and replicated them, and hopefully other people will replicate them in the future so they can see what's changing versus what's constant in American attitudes. And talk a little bit about what were some of the polling data, what are some of the splits, the gaps that you found that were most surprising and or most troubling? The one that surprised Jim and me most was that on the basis of the first survey, we thought we might be seeing that the gap in attitudes between the general public and the military was actually less significant than the gap between the general public and elite civilians. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a lot of that in other political realms this election cycle. And it turns out not to be true for civil military affairs, that elites, whether you define them as policy elites, people who are congressional staffers, people who are actively involved in the shaping and implementing of policy, versus general elites, CEOs, religious leaders, community leaders. And in fact, the gap between elites and the military is much less than the gaps, particularly the knowledge gaps, between the public and the military. So we were wrong about that and relieved to be wrong about that. Right, right. (laughs) It really shocked Peter Fever, Jim Golby, and Lindsay Cohn, who wrote the chapter in the book that compared and contrasted the 1998 study to ours, what worried them most was that the respect for the military continues to rise at a time at which respect for elected political leaders has plummeted. And they worry that that so much increases the military's weight in policymaking that it's a danger for civil-military relations. Jim and I did not see that. We could think of too many examples of fired military leaders, of well-known, publicly acknowledged advice that was not taken by political leaders, that we didn't see that pattern. But we do share their concern that political leaders begin to think about the military as just another political interest group, that their military advice is politicized, that there are Republican generals and Democratic generals, Mm -hmm. something catastrophically reinforced by retired military people speaking at political conventions of late. So the way that political leaders view the military as politicized in a way that the military does not view itself did worry us quite a lot. The other thing that really surprised us and was really brought out in Nadia Shadlow's chapter is how malleable public attitudes really are. Political leaders think, well, just to take the case of President Obama in Syria, right? So many times people in the White House said, the American public won't support another war in the Middle East. The American public right. won't want that. And as both Nadia and Ben Wittes and Cody Poplin in their terrific chapter on legal issues point out attitudes are actually very malleable, that they depend on a political leader being willing to expend political capital to shape public attitudes and to sustain public support. So what the political leaders seem to want is to have to do nothing and to have this enormous reservoir of political support for doing hard things. And of course, you know, I want horses and cattle, too, but I would actually have to expend some effort to have them. <laughs> so that also gets the point that you would um, uh, shape strategy and policy based upon what the public opinion traction would bear. So first you go out and do the polling, and then you retroactively fit a 
you know, an overseas defense policy to meet that. And of course, that's not necessarily the best, <laughs> the best course of action for national interests. And for most senior military leaders, they would find that troubling, to say the least. Absolutely. One of the other things, other motivations that uh, got Jim and me interested in doing this is that when the military looks at civilian political leadership, you know, because the military doesn't have a responsibility for aggregating social preferences, right, for deciding how much effort to spend on the war versus on social security reform, or how do we cover the poor with medical care. Because the military doesn't have to deal with those kinds of trade-offs that presidents do, they very often undervalue the difficulty of doing it. Mm. And so one of the things that got us interested in this was explaining to the military that, for example, a Goldwater nickel for the interagency is never going to work because politics are the president's job. Right. <laughs> so right. you can't leech the politics and personality out of high policy in a way many military people, especially at the mid to senior grades, would have us do. Yes, that is an issue you hear a lot of time from the sort of 0506 world. I was just going to go to the Golby Cone Fever. There's one really interesting finding in that chapter that struck me was how many veterans and civilian masses supported officers refusing to carry out, quote, unwise orders and even yeah. leaking the material to the press. That's a huge jump from the last 98 study. And I wonder if that is Snowden effect or the belief that you cannot trust what's going on behind closed doors. I mean, that finding really struck me. Yes. It should really strike you. And all of us who worked on various aspects of the book were struck at how much the lack of public knowledge about the profession of military arms is encouraging the military to violate the professional standards that have, in fact, made them such a respected part of American mm. society. That the public is enormously supportive of the military doing the kinds of things that John Allen and Mike Flynn did and of, you know, making judgments about what is a wise military order, which, of course, you and I know <laughs> political leaders get to decide what to order. Elected political leaders get to decide what to order. The military doesn't get a vote on whether it's judicious or not. Right. They only get to either carry out lawful orders or resign their commissions. And that has been such a strong and stable part of American civil-military relations throughout the life of our republic. The American military has an outsized role in the shaping of policy because the institution and the people in the political realm have such confidence that the military won't usurp civilian judgment. Mm. And while I don't share the view, Jim doesn't share the view, and most people who wrote for the book don't share the view that the traditional academic concern about a military overthrowing civilian governance, that's not a reasonable concern in an American context. Right. We don't have that kind of military. But this slow erosion of support for the fundamentals of the civil military mm -hmm. divide that are so important to the military's respect in the broad public, those are eroding in the public mind. And they need to be reinforced by the military and by civilians as well. It's because it's really important that they not slide. No, absolutely. And people, I don't think, are 
cognizant of what that norm is and why it's embedded in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution and how it's been transmitted down and instances where senior civilian leaders stepped outside of it and sometimes lost their job deservedly for trying to do end rounds to Congress or the media or for, you know, impugning the president for personal behavior or acting in a way unbecoming of an officer. And I don't think people are really aware of that. I, I always describe it as, you know, a lot of citizens have this sort of saying, <laughs> it's thank you for your service, whatever that is. Uh, they, they know they're supposed to respect the military. They don't know why, other than these are uh, individuals who go overseas and, and conduct military operations. So, I mean, just talk a little bit more about that gap between, I would say, public fascination, but disinterest in fact. Yes, the levels of ignorance in the American public reflected by the respondents of these surveys are pretty staggering. And not only can many people not come within a factor of six in knowing the size of the American army, but in many cases, it's not just that they don't know facts, it's that they make a series of judgments on the basis of it. Mm -hmm. And what worried me most in the data was actually the high proportion of respondents to every single question who either wouldn't offer a view or who said mm, they had no opinion. Because right. as you know, Americans don't do that in <laughs> surveys, right. right? Like we know everything about everything. And what that tells me that, that you know, routinely 20%, 30% of people either said they didn't know or wouldn't offer an opinion. What I took from that is that there is, as you suggest, Micah, a norm in place in American society of appreciation for what our military does without a whole lot of knowledge about what that actually is. And the positive side of that is that Americans have a rich appreciation for how much American families in the military put up with in order to fight the wars we've been fighting for the last 10 years. But the downside of it is that there is a tendency to either treat folks in military service as comic book heroes mm -hmm. or as victims. And even people who, who should know better, right? Remember during the 2004 election when a presidential candidate, John Kerry, suggested that, you know, these poor kids dying in Iraq, they just didn't have better options. And that's not the American that's, military. Right, right. My other favorite example of people who should know better is, you know, both John McCain and Mitt Romney as presidential candidates, respectively in 2008 and 2012, scolding the president for not taking the military's recommendations. Right. It's the president's job to, you know, hear their advice and make a judgment about whether to take it. He has no responsibility to take it. So you see these perturbations and the place where the public not having a richer sense of civil military norms is actually in the treatment of veterans, because here it really has outsized effects of, for example, between 2005 and 2010, you could see in veterans' unemployment statistics that there were many employers who were hesitant to hire veterans mm -hmm. because they had totally ungrounded worries about PTSD right. or workplace violence. And these are eminently fixable 
eminently fixable problems. And I think in the case of veterans unemployment, that public attitude has shifted. But we as a civilian society have a responsibility to the people who fight in our name to better understand what they're doing, to make inputs on what they're doing, and to treat them as normal warriors and citizens, not as comic book heroes or victims. As I often say, shouldn't you be interested in how more than half of your $1.3 trillion in taxpayer discretionary spending is, is going to, at, at least? Um, <laughs> So the book covers a lot of the sort of, I mean, there's sort of two tiers of civil military relations. I always think about there's the general public and elites and then impressions of the military broadly. But you mentioned the second higher level one, which is the operational conversations between senior uniformed officers and the Joint Chiefs of Staff or combatant commanders and then the NSC and or the principals uh, and, and the president. And so trying to uh, unpack what is providing your best professional military advice and respecting it and listening to it, and then the president, as you said, aggregating social concerns and public opinion and other issues, uh, making the best decision as he or she decides. Uh, how do you, I mean, just how do you sense that dynamic? Uh, do you think there's any bleed in from the first, which is over sort of adulation of the military combined with ignorance, is that having any impact on the higher level discussions at the sort of White House NSC level about operations and deployments? So the authors of this book differed widely on that question. Mm. Jim and I do not believe we see it. And, well, I should say to start with that civil military relations at the highest policymaking in the United States, as you well know, Micah, the system's designed to be a negotiation, right? And it works best. Presidents get the best military outcomes when that system is limber, right? When political leaders ask for advice and give no penalty for the provision of that advice, mm -hmm. and when military leaders work to try and create options that fit within the range that political leaders could actually see themselves choosing. And so it has worked better and worse over time, but it always works best when it's limber and there are high levels of trust between the senior civilians and the senior military people. And in my time working as a director for defense strategy on the NSC, for example, it was not limber. Mm. I, in part because of the way Donald Rumsfeld chose to run the Pentagon. Right. But, of course, these responsibilities always rest with the president. Absolutely, yep. And, and President Bush was personally contributing to that brittleness, in part because of his support for Rumsfeld, but also in part of because of the way he was doing his job in those years. I think if you look at the second Bush administration, it's a very different, much more trusting much closer give and take between the political and the military leadership. And you see it in how the system functioned better, not just over Iraq, but over lots of things. And now I think the system is enormously brittle. And military leaders differ on whether the president is the problem or whether mm -hmm. the NSC staff is the problem or whether weak cabinet secretaries that can't deliver the president are the problem, but there is a lot of brittleness now. For the authors in the book, Golby, Cohn, and Fever 
thought this was the biggest difference and the biggest problem from the 1998 Triangle Study. Mm -hmm. And they have a tendency to view the strength of public attitudes reinforcing the military's weight in the policy process as, as a danger. Jim and I and some of the other authors have a slightly different view, which is we don't see the progression of attitudes as linear, and in part because we're such a fans of the 1998 study that we see how much is different from then sure. and think the public attitudes are both malleable and in some cases actually cyclical. One of the most interesting chapters for the book was written by two former Stanford students of ours, A.J. Sugarman and Matthew Colford, who looked at the experience of millennials and what they think they see in the data is that the attitudes of millennials are on many of these issues most similar to the attitudes of people over 65. Mm. And that what they think they see is for millennials who came onto the job market in the tumult after the 2008 financial crisis and who their entire adult lives, the country has been at war, that their attitudes are more similar to people who lived through the Great Depression and World War II than they are similar to the attitudes of baby boomers. Interesting. And if they're right, that would support the notion that, you know, as David McCullough always says, people live in their own history. They don't think about it as history. Right, right. Uh, So many thoughts there. I mean, talk about just a question about crises. So every once in a while there's a publicly emerges a disagreement between a civilian leader and a military official. 1993, General Barry McCaffrey famously is dissed by a young (laughs) senior White House staffer who apparently Barry took this terribly and told everybody. And then there's... Of course he did. (laughs) There's higher level... You know, famously, the, the Rolling Stone articles and, and some of the comments by individuals close to General McChrystal. And then w- there is a reported crisis. But I always think compared to many other countries, especially countries with such an enormous military and is at war sort of consistently, it's really not a crisis, just, just a publicly emerged disagreement. I mean, do you imagine there to be a true crisis in, at, at that level in terms of decision-making, in terms of ever being a constitutional problem? No, nor did anybody who wrote a chapter for this book. Mm. One of the best chapters, I know I say that about all of them, but (laughs) I actually really like the work that the people who wrote the chapters for the book did. Mac Owens, who thinks a lot about civil-military relations in American history, wrote a chapter for the book in which he argues that the current brittleness at high policy levels is well within historical norms for the United States. And that, you know, we lack perspective on Harry Truman having to fire Douglas MacArthur or, you know, dozens of other examples in which the military, at a time in which they took their professional responsibilities less seriously than the constraints our military feels now. In fact, what we noticed in the, what everybody noticed who worked on this book in the survey data is that the only real constraint on a much larger, more outsized role for the military is the professionalism of the military itself. And I think we see it in real time right now. And just two examples. One is that when Stan McChrystal got fired, you'll notice there was no complaining from anyone in the military because 
they understood that he was his staff and by extension the command climate that he created was so far beyond the line of what is appropriate that I don't know anyone in the American military who doesn't think Stan McChrystal is a military genius. The work that he did to rethink how we were uh, collecting intelligence and feeding that intelligence into operations so that we could adapt faster than our adversaries. I don't know anybody who doesn't think that was the most important change that was made in Iraq. And yet nobody thought it was okay to do what Stan McChrystal's staff did. And so that tells me how, how strong and healthy the norm is. And as you know, Micah, it's a function of the rigorous education that the American military puts into to making the profession mm-hmm. and not just, you know, a job. The second interesting data point, I think, is how hard uh, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marty Dempsey, the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joe Dunford, and retired senior officers are how much they, how clear they believe the line that was crossed by retired people being so overtly political. Mm-hmm. The, the norm among the military tends to be if you want to engage in politics, run for office. Right. Um, if, if you want to politicize your role without running for office, you ought not to have your military title at the start of your name. And you see people clustering around that norm in the conversations about what John Allen and Mike Flynn did. And on the John Allen note, I mean, not only was, you know, the sort of Romanesque um, martiality of the convention beyond the, the norm of civil military relations, but also in the interview he subsequently gave, in which he was responding to Donald Trump, the thing that most affronted and worried me was John Allen saying that because Donald Trump hadn't served in the military, he had no right right to judge John Allen's service. And that's just flat-out dangerous to suggest. And I think that has been the general reaction of people who think about civil military affairs and who think about the American military as a profession. It was funny because I was speaking to somebody about that, a retired uh, three-star, who said what Flynn and Allen are doing are worse than the revolt of the generals against Rumsfeld in 2006 because that is a case of a criticism both of command climate and management as well as conduct of ongoing military operations. And that's a political appointee, right? Somebody who has to be confirmed yeah. by the Senate, but appointee. But being directly um, involved in who will be the commander-in-chief is another level of interference. Yes, and and Greg Newbold and the very outspoken uh, retired military folks in 2005 and 2006 were appealing to the president to make a different choice. And that is a different level of criticism and and belief that you are impervious to civilian oversight from what John Allen and Mike Flynn are doing. Well, Corey, we could talk forever, but the last question which people are most interested in hearing because you're such a respected mentor and scholar and practitioner 
is what advice would you give to the younger version of you uh, if you were entering this field? Oh, I love this question so much, Micah, because as you know, I think about myself as a school teacher. <laughs> the advice I would give my 24-year-old self would be don't be afraid to run your ship aground. You can get seaworthy again. And what I notice in people starting out in our field, and this may be a function, actually, of them having come into the workforce after the financial devastation of 2008, is that they are very often gun-shy. Mm. They're afraid if they make a mistake, they can't recover from it. And my own career is living proof that you can run your ship aground and set sail again if people think you're trying to do the right thing. Right. And so don't hesitate to incur damage to yourself if you think it's actually advancing something important because what I didn't understand at 24 and what I hope other people will is that when you incur professional damage, you are not the only person whose behavior is being judged, right? And, and you sh I have been saved so many times when I made mistakes by people who thought I was trying to do the right thing or, you know, thought I was doing something foolish but resented the penalties that were being imposed on me by others. <laughs> And they helped make me seaworthy again. Oh. And I see too many young people fearful, trimming their sails because they're worried that they can't outrun damage if they do something bold and virtuous or impetuous and dumb, but, but that shows that they have the heart for the right kind of fights. You, you know, I would say that of now having done eight of these podcasts is that, and I've asked this of everybody, there, some version of that is the advice everybody gives, which is... Is that right? Yes. Oh, that makes me happy. It's I mean, I, w I would put it in a group of three things. One is meander. Don't be afraid to meander yes. in various pathways. You don't know where you're going anyways. You're young. The second I is, agree with that. The second is to be authentic, is to follow what you want to do, because especially in the academic world, you cannot pick the next topic. Don't just do what your graduate advisor is doing. You know, just do what you want to study and research and work on. And the final thing is absolutely don't be afraid to fail because you're going to be in this for a long time. Like this is, a, I, I tell people all the time in this field, this is a longer game than you imagine. Yeah. And you don't know where you will end up or they will end up. And it's likely going to be an iterative relationship over time. And that sort of credibility and capital is built slowly but can be squandered quickly. But when you're younger... You get free passes constantly, as you should. So I had, um, my dissertation was funded by a shady four-nation research consortium that was looking into questions of nuclear weapons history. And the great Harvard historian, Ernie May, oh. ran the American team. Love Ernie. And when I was three months into doing my research, I had, I had to give a talk at a conference that the nuclear history program organized. And I was so scared, like, I was just sure, because I didn't know anything. Right. And I was so sure that I was actually going to convey that ignorance to so many of the important people in my field that I would never be able to outrun the, the reputation I was about to make three months into my dissertation research. 
And the morning I was giving my talk, Ernie plunked down next to me at breakfast, asked how I was doing. And because I was young and inexperienced, I didn't know any better. So blurted all of that out to him. And he laughed a laugh that could peel paint off buildings a quarter mile away and gave me some of life's essential wisdom, which was, nobody expects you to know anything. (laughs) (laughs) You can't be a good historian until you're at least 40 years old because you you simply haven't had enough time to read things. We're not judging you on your knowledge. We're judging you on your potential. It was so liberating to have Ernie shift my perspective and think, ah, okay, I don't have to know anything. I just have to know that someday I I just have to show that I someday could know something. Well, thankfully, you not only know everything and are willing to share it uh, in your writing and in podcasts like this because uh, it makes the field a better and richer place. So, Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you haven't yet, please go out and buy the new book, Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military, out with Hoover Institution. Corey, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure, Micah.